0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word today, this word written by David so many years ago, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us, speak to our situation, and help us to turn to Jesus in praise of your loving kindness. Amen. Amen. Well as uh, Richard said, uh, we're in this series, so let me introduce myself, my name's Nigel, if you're a guest here, I'm one of the lay readers here. We're in this series on Psalms, and last week Jonathan brought us Psalm 5, what he called praying under pressure, and uh, he spoke about the Psalm raising questions Does God hear us? Does, in fact, God care? Will God accept me? Evil seems to be triumphant. Will God keep me? And uh, he was able to finish up with the good news that, in fact, Jesus is triumphant. Well, I'm hoping that uh, by the time we get to the end of this, we will still have the same message that Jesus is, in fact, triumphant. Because we live, don't we, in a troubled world. We all experience trouble of some types, of some ways. I was privileged last week to listen to a woman who stood about this high uh, from North Korea, and uh, she had to have a translator with her. She'd escaped the persecution of North Korea. Well, that's trouble in a big way, uh, sort of one extreme, but we all have troubles a long life at different ways. So, despite science and uh, the glorious health service, which we rejoice in, and I'm not getting any... that's better. Um, Despite the the fact that we've got, you know, the great National Health Service, which we're very thankful for, and uh, and the increases in medicine and all the rest of it, we still suffer from illness, disease and of course, ultimately, death. We suffer the ills of our society, don't we? Family disruptions and breakdowns, unemployment, crime, to name just a few. And it's when these troubles come to us, it is often when questions come to us about our God, as it does to the psalmist here. But it's, can I suggest to you, it's what we do with these troubles, how we live our lives, that uh, is the important point. How do we seek to please God despite the problems in life? Well, this uh, Psalm 6, written by uh, King David, a man chosen by God to rule his people, a man blessed by God, both physically, spiritually, and in relationships as well. So what do we know then about David? Well, a brief recap. We know quite a lot about David. We know he first comes to attention as a young man, as a musician, who later uh, killed that giant Goliath, he becomes a favourite of King Saul and a close friend of Saul's son, Jonathan. However, this turned all wrong because uh, the, the king was uh, envious of Saul, uh, envious of David, and he was worried that David was going to take his kingdom, so he sought to kill him. But after Saul and Jonathan were killed in that battle, David is anointed as king. However... As king, he arranges the death of Uriah, the Hittite, to facilitate his uh, adultery with his wife Bathsheba. So we've got a man here who is a great man of God. who is mentioned a lot in the prophetic literature. He's seen as the ideal king. He's seen as the ancestor to a future Messiah, and many psalms are written by him. Yet we also see a man here who disobeyed God. He fell from grace. He committed murder and adultery with Bathsheba. In other words, he was a man, a fallen man, like the rest of all of mankind. And here he writes this psalm, what is known as the first of the six penitential psalms. Certainly its language expresses sorrow, humiliation, hatred of sin, and what are the unfailing marks of the contrite spirit when it turns to God. Now we don't know when David wrote this psalm. It might have been at the time of Absalom's rebellion, his son's rebellion. It might have been at the time of Bathsheba, or it might have been at the time of his problems with Saul. We just don't know. And we may well find this short psalm difficult to read, difficult to understand, and most of all, difficult to apply to our daily lives. Well, I think we can look at it in two ways, or two sections. Firstly, the first seven verses. They're David's pleas in his distress. He's in great distress, as we'll see in a minute. But then later, the last two verses... A different theme, because there he shows confidence and declares that God has heard his prayer and delivered him out of his troubles. Now, for us, of course, the, uh, the, for us, the important thing is how do we respond to problems within our lives? When we get problems, do we doubt God's existence or God's ability to deal with him or his judgment or even his desire to help us through difficult times. So what does David do that will help us in this situation? Well, I think the first thing we see here, that in his trouble, David calls upon the Lord. He calls upon the Lord. Look at verse 1. David is in anguish. He is suffering greatly. The main problem is not with his enemies, but rather with God. But it's also God that is the answer to the problem. Whatever the outward circumstances that prompted this outpouring, he knows that he's liable to God's anger and God's wrath. Look at verse 1. In response to this, he doesn't doubt God's existence, or he doesn't question God's right to have an influence over his life unlike perhaps people today. No, he calls upon God to take positive action within his life. He calls for mercy from God. Now, even though there's no explicit confession of sin in this psalm, the psalmist seems to regard his present painful condition as connected with some personal wrongdoings, what some of us might call his transgressions. So how then does God call his people to be obedient to follow his commands? Look at verse 1. David says that God rebukes and disciplines. He rebukes and disciplines. Verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Now God has got two means by which he can get his children to obedience. Uh, Simmons, the uh, commentator, says this: "It's by his word that he rebukes them, and by his rod by which he chastises them." Now, his word, of course, here refers to the Lord of God, the law of God given to Moses, what we would call the Ten Commandments, and the people of God were called to obey the commands and to offer sacrifices to pay the price for their disobeying them. Their sin required the spilling of blood of animals to take the price. Such was the seriousness of their actions. And the rod is seen in the way that God punishes his people throughout their history, usually at the hands of invading armies, a direct result of their rebellion against God's law and holiness. And so we read in verse 2 and 3, he says, he calls for mercy from God. Be merciful, my bones and soul. They simply, these words bones and soul, simply represent the whole person rather than the two sides, that is the physical and the spiritual of human nature. Heal me, he says, for my bones are in agony. Now, much of this language of this psalms suggests physical illness, perhaps even to the point of death, verse 5. But the key problem might equally be psychological or spiritual or depression. How literal we take these words, or metaphorically we take them, we cannot be sure. But one important point emerges here. That, of course, is the time element of his distress, as indicated in verse 3. He cries out, How long, O Lord? How long? How long will the situation go on for? And isn't this one of our great problems? Isn't this mentally and psychologically when we suffer the most? Despite the fact that the psalmist believes in the sovereignty of the Lord who controls time as well as the outcome. And we can identify with this, can't we? Because when we, we suffer more, when we don't know how long the suffering is to go on for. So what can we say from this then? Well, I think we can look at this and we can see that God appoints time and that God is in control of time. He appoints time and he is in control of time. One commentator put it like this. There is an appointed time which God has measured for the problems that his children have to bear, before which time they shall not be delivered and for which they must patiently wait, not thinking to argue with God for his time to end. Now we see something, of course, of this in God's timing when we consider biblical history. Think about it. The Israelites remained in Egypt in slavery till the number 430 years were completed, a long time by any measure. Joseph was in, was in prison for three and a bit years until the appointed time came for his delivery. The Jews remained 70 years in captivity in Babylon. They had to learn that God had his own timings fulfilling his own promises. Now in contrast to this, of course, we living in our age today, we tend to be impatient and our time impatient in our lives and our problems. And we so easily rebel against God, arguing with God about his timing And of course we see examples of this again in the Old Testament with Job and Jonah as two examples as well as David here. But it's when we come to the New Testament of course that we have related promises made by God in uh, the New Testament with related uh, time given by Jesus The disciples were told by Jesus, for instance, to go into the city after his death and resurrection and to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They had to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, believing that his promise would be fulfilled. It led, of course, to power and authority as the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost in teaching and healing ministries. We've also the the promise made by Jesus to return a second time. And if you think about that promise that Jesus gave to his disciples, even the apostles expected that this would happen in their time. Yet we experience the delay to that even today. And we can come impatient with God to come again a second time. But we need to remember that Jesus is not coming a second time because God is giving people time to repent and come back to the Father for salvation. So Jesus will return a second time. So we've got time-related promises here in this psalm. But David is in great distress, isn't he? He calls upon the Lord. Look at verses 3 to 7. How long? He calls for saving actions from God, verse 4. Look at the condition that David's in, verse 6. He's worn out from groaning, weeping all night. His eyes grow weak with the tears that spill onto his bed. But what we see here, and I think this is an important principle for us, is that David is honest with God's commands. He's honest concerning his situation. He doesn't try to mask his condition before God. He recognises that God knows his situation. And the same can be said for us tonight, today. We can and we should be honest with God, even when we're angry or despairing, because God knows us thoroughly. And he wants the best for us. Now, anger, of course, can lead to rash acts, or it can turn inwards into depression. But because we can trust our all powerful God, we don't have to be victims of circumstances or weighed down by the guilt of sin. We can be honest with God. Jesus promises that we can come to the Father because if we admit our sin and rebellion to Him, He has taken the punishment for us by dying on the cross and defeating death and rising to a new life. Jesus also promised that as we believe in him, he will give us the Holy Spirit to enable us to live lives of peace and power and authority, even when times are difficult, which is something that North Korean lady was able to tell us about. Truly, this is a strong picture in front of us tonight, a picture of sorrow. David is in a bad way, and so may we be. But it raises the question, of course, why should God act? Well, David states in verse 4 that uh, because he loved him, verse 4, David knows that God loves him. David is secure in the knowledge that God loves him because of the covenant God has made with his people. God will rescue him now in this present life. Because we read in verse 5 that it won't be possible to worship God when he is dead. And that God would want us to do this while we are still alive. Now we need to look at verse 5 in a bit more detail. In the ESV version, it reads this For in death there is no remembrance of you, in shale, Who will give you praise? Now, what we have here is an Old Testament comment concerning their view on death and the afterlife. As Kidna states, one commentator states, this is experimental language rather than doctrinal language. It's matched by other Old Testament phrases that highlight the tragedy of death as that which silences a man's worship cuts him off from God and man and makes an end of him. These are the cries from the heart that life is all too short and death implacable and decisive. But they're not denials of God's sovereignty beyond the grail. For in fact, shale lies open before him, as we read in Proverbs 15, verse 11. And he is there in Psalm 139, verse 8. Another uh, commentator puts it like this. The psalmist here may reflect an awareness that death would cut him off from worshipping God's house rather than a theological comment of life after death. Were Yahweh not to intervene, he would lose a worshipper and a speaker would lose God. And so what we have here is, unlike the Christian view of heavenly existence after death, there is no chorus of the faithful eternally singing the praises of God around the heavenly throne. Sheol is presented as a mute and silent place. So the psalmist plays a trump card. He says, if God wishes to hear the praises of the faithful, he must then keep them alive now with their voices primed with thankfulness for his deliverance. So shale is not a nice place. It's a dark wasteland, says Kidna. Now the, conce- the conception then of death and the afterlife implicit here is that of the Old Testament in general. The state of the dead in the Old Testament is not differentiated with respect to good and evil people. There's no clear distinction between heaven and hell. Sheol was conceived as a kind of underworld. The word is translated as Hades. And in Sheol, persons were believed to exist in the form of a semi-life, at, not at rest but not in joy because they didn't have the fullness of life which made for a richness with the relationship from the living God. Therefore death was to be dreaded. And so the psalmist feared death for in the state of Sheol there would be neither memory of God nor praise and worship of God. Now, this, of course, is in complete contrast to that we have in the gospel hope given in the writings of the New Testament, the life of Jesus, that there is a place where we can be with the Father after death. So, remember the promises of, uh, of Jesus to his disciples. We read in Luke 23, four, verse 40, for instance, uh, on when Jesus was on the cross, with the criminal. They were both dying, yet Jesus promises this man that his faith would lead him to spending eternity with his father. Jesus gave the criminal hope. He was paying the price for his criminal actions according to the Roman law, but he, through his faith, would be with the father in eternity that day. Also we read in John 14 verse 2, Jesus says this, my father's house has many rooms. If they were not not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And so that's our hope. That's our hope that when we come to believe in Jesus as our saviour, and we rely upon his death to take the price for our sins, we will go to be with Jesus. This is what we want to share with our local community. This is the hope of the gospel message that we share with our friends and family and with the children at Holiday Club in a couple of weeks' time. So there we have, if you like, the first large section of this psalm, the despair and the crying out of David. What about the second part? We'll look at verses 8 to 10, just two verses. But there's a change here, isn't there? Having made his request known to God, the psalmist is confident that his sorrow will be turned into joy. By the workings of God's grace upon his heart, he knew his prayer was accepted. And he did not doubt, but it would be in due time answered. His prayers will be accepted. Now, the word signifies prayer made to God, the righteous judge, as God of his righteousness, who would plead his cause and right his wrongs. And as a believer, we've got that same confidence, haven't we? That through the blood and righteousness of Christ, we can go to God to plead our cause as well. So in just these two verses, we see the confidence of David the confidence that David has that his faith and the cries and weeping he has witnessed by God. He is confident that his prayers will be answered. Do we have the same confidence that David has? Yes, we will be troubled in life and we can and should bring these troubles to God. He knows and cares And loves us. It's not an easy psalm, this Psalm 6, but it is a practical psalm that shows us that even people blessed by God can have problems. David was blessed by God. But even when these happen and God doesn't appear to hear him, his faith comes through. God hears, and we can have the confidence in the fact that God hears our cries, our prayers. And the promises of Jesus can be ours today and for the future. So though it appears to be somewhat uh, dark, Psalm, do away with confidence tonight that Jesus offers us all hope. Our neighbours, our friends, our family, the children who play in the streets around here. God provided confidence for us. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the honesty of David, how he wept on that bed, how he cried out to you in distress. And we know, Father, that when we cry to you, you hear us and you will answer. And we thank you, Father, that you showed this through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We think of when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet we know you didn't forsake him and he came back to life again. And so we pray, Father, that you would Bless us all tonight. Amen.